This evening's sermon text is in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. It's a series of parables that Jesus tells the crowds who are following him. It's the first lengthy section of teaching in this Gospel. And we'll read together the first major parables here from verses 1 through to verse 25. Mark 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain. Growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Have you ever wondered 
why people can be so slow, so reticent to accept the gospel message. Have you ever asked yourself that? Maybe you have a, a friend who, who comes to you and they're burdened with guilt, something in their life they're ashamed of, and you tell them there's, there's forgiveness, there's free and full forgiveness from God, and the response is anger or silence or confusion. Or you bring a family member to church and they sit beside you as the gospel is, is painted in the most glowing terms, this uh, incredible description given, and they sit there and don't understand a word of it. How can people be so cold, so distant from a message that is so good? Well, it's exactly the same in Mark's gospel, the picture that is painted in these opening chapters. Jesus appears on the scene, Mark 1, and he proclaims that the gospel is now at hand. The kingdom of God has come. And you would expect there to be a, a mass return to him. That's not quite what we see. Amidst the, the crowds and those lining up to be healed already by chapter 4, there's been some surprising, some strong opposition. The local uh, Pharisees and Herodians in the north of Israel have already decided this early in Jesus' ministry that the time has come to kill him. A delegation from Jerusalem, from the temple, has come and written an official report that... Uh, In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, Jesus is filled with the devil. Jesus' own family, who who saw him growing up in sinless perfection, have already come and tried to take him and pull him away and lock him up because they think he's mad. Jesus speaks in to this situation in chapter 4. The crowds come to him and Jesus addresses this question, how can it be, how can it be? If the message is true and good and powerful, how can it be that there's such a mixed response to it? Why this anger and scorn? Why this apathy? And today I want to walk us through the three pictures that Jesus gives to answer this question. Three scenes, three parables in these verses, Mark 4, 1 to 25. The first picture, it's the longest, it's where we'll spend most of our time, and perhaps the most familiar, it's at the farm. Jesus takes us there, verses 1 to 20. And we're watching this scene, it's different, very different to a farm today. As the farmer steps out, he hasn't got a a tractor, he hasn't got a team of machinery behind him. He's there alone and he has this simple bag in front of him, a bag filled with seed. And as he steps around the farm as we watch. He takes these, these fistfuls of grain and he, he flings them up into the air across his field. A bit like maybe confetti at a wedding. You see these fistfuls of grain flying up and he repeats it again and again as he walks around his field. And then he goes back and begins to plow it all in slowly. These long furrows emerging as he digs this grain into the soil. And we stand there and we We watch the scene unfold, and Jesus picks out for us some elements of this farm. There's some seed that just landed on the path, and it doesn't take long, just minutes before the birds are beginning to circle around and swooping down and picking it up, and it's gone. 
And then the weeks passed, and we begin to see some sprouting up in one far corner of the field. And it grows. In fact, it's the first to emerge and the fastest to grow. But soon, as the hot late spring and summer months come, it withers away. Others grows normally, and it seems to be developing fine until quite late in the year. It's choked out by thorns. And what seem to be strong stalks don't bring any fruit. And at last, after months of waiting, finally we see there is a part of the field, a large part, that has produced some grain, not snatched up, not burnt out, not choked. There's some grain, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, a magnificent harvest. And as Jesus goes on to explain, this, this picture shows us what happens when the word goes out. As this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed, as it's flung up into the air, these, these fistfuls of truth, when they land, they reach very different destinations, very different hearts. Some it's instantly picked away, some it's burned after a short while, some it grows but is slowly choked out before it can produce fruit. And some makes it right to the end, to the harvest, and is full of fruit. You see, Jesus is showing us first and foremost in this first picture that the, the problem, as it were, this mixed response, it's not to do with the power of the gospel message. It's the same seed, seed that's flung out. It always contains the same gem of life, the same power to grow and to bear fruit. It's not the gospel message that's deficient. Sometimes it's preached and it's done so badly and the message is so weak that it achieves nothing. It's, it's the hearts, it's the soil, Jesus says. It's where the seed lands. It's you as the listeners, Jesus says. And the picture emerges of, of a sort of spiritual sorting. When I was much younger, we used to get the Argos uh, catalogue delivered to our house. I don't know if anyone here can remember the good old days of Argos catalogues, a thick book. Uh, the most interesting part of the back was filled with toys. They had a Christmas edition it's pages and pages of glittering robots and more robots and I can't remember anything else, but lots, lots and lots of robots. And I used to spend hours poring over these pictures and wishing that all these things would be there waiting for me under the tree. And the robot that was most exciting was a coin sorting robot. I don't know if you've seen this, coin sorting machines, you take a little handful of loose change of one piece and two piece and you drop it in and the gears start to wear and it sorts it into these little columns or the one piece on one side or the two-piece on the other, the 50s, the 20s, the pounds. And I remember just being enthralled with the idea that it could sort all of your money. What we have here is, as it were, a sort of a spiritual sorting machine. The gospel is flung out, and all the listeners, as that seed is going out, they're being sorted. The crowds that, that stand there and listen to Jesus, they're being sorted. These cogs are turning, and they're being sorted into one of these channels. Where are they? Are they there with those who are going to have no fruit at all, instantly snuffed out by Satan? Are they those who are going to continue for a little time and it will be burned? Those who are going to continue for longer, be choked, or are they going to be sorted into this side? Those who bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. When the disciples come to Jesus and ask him about this, they're, they're baffled by it. Verse 10 the 12 disciples, and if 
a few others who are interested, they come to Jesus and they say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Jesus gives them a surprising response. Verse 13, part of his response, he says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this parable explains why I'm teaching in parables. It's a parable about parables. Get this and you'll get my entire teaching style. It's a surprising verse, isn't it? What does the sower have to do with Jesus' teaching style? What does this tell us about his choice of parables as opposed to preaching that we're more familiar with today? Well, the answer comes in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything's in parable so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, if we think of this sorting machine again, the, the, the message of the gospel, sorting people into groups, the, the unfruitful and the fruitful, the different categories of unfruitful and fruitful, when Jesus comes with parables, it's, as it were, this upgraded sorting machine. It, it sorts far faster, Jesus is saying, between those who are not going to bear fruit and those who are. When you hear a sermon, it can take days, weeks, months, years to know which category you're in. It takes a long time to know if the word that you heard tonight, this morning, last Sunday, is going to bear fruit. But with the parable, there's almost an instant sorting into those who are not going to bear fruit and those who are. And that's because parables are are, are cryptic. Most of the people who listen to them will have no idea what is going on. There was this huge crowd, Mark 4.1, this massive crowd, very large crowd, Mark says, who followed Jesus and listened to the parable. And yet of those, only a tiny group in verse 10 actually bother to find out what it's all about. Hundreds of listeners just heard a nice farmyard story and went home. A nice, perhaps, moral lesson, interesting insight into the ways of farming, but no more. Instantly sorted out, the unfruitful. And only the small group who really wanted to dig further, who were willing to stay behind and ask for Jesus' help, they were the only ones who, as it were, were sorted into the fruitful, who were given the truth, to whom the secret was revealed. We see that today, don't we? Think of maybe the parable of the prodigal son. How many of your co-workers, neighbors, family members know it? Maybe 60, 70% could tell you at least the outline of the parable. How many of them have any idea what it means? Two, three percent? There's still that sorting that goes on with parables. The superficial ones who are instantly, as it were, sorted out. And those who are willing to dig, who come to Jesus and are shown what it really means. And this is a, a very specific time in the history of the church. Jesus is saying, we're, we're here, verse 12, he's quoting Isaiah. There's a sense of judgment when I use parables. A judgment that these masses who are standing there, they're going to see but have no idea what's really going on. They're going to hear, but... They're not going to understand because their destiny is not to turn and be forgiven. These words 
first seen in Isaiah's calling as he was sent out to people destined for judgment. The parables were for a specific time and place. This, as it were, accelerated sorting in judgment. But the principle stays for us today, doesn't it? As we speak, and we, we try to speak as clearly and as openly as possible so that everyone can understand. As we speak the word, your hearts are being sorted. The cogs of that machine are spinning, as it were, and as you go out, the word you heard sorts you into one of these categories. You see, Jesus is turning the tables on us. We can stand and we point the finger at the gospel and say, well, why isn't it more powerful? Why isn't it a a message that that, that takes people uh, more, that grips people more? Jesus points the finger and says, you need to examine your own heart. It's not the seed that's the problem. It's not the gospel message. It's your heart. Can you honestly say that sermons that you've heard have one fruit? Can you honestly say that you haven't allowed the truth you've received to be burnt out or choked by the cares of the world? As this sorting goes on week by week, where are you being sorted? It's a sobering question. And a question that far too often, if we're honest, we have to confess that there's very little fruit. That far too often the word washes over us and we go out Monday morning and it's made no difference to our lives. These are difficult words that Jesus speaks. But Jesus then takes us to another scene. We've been at the farmyard, we've seen how there's this process of of sorting going on. Well, Jesus now takes us by the hand and he brings us into a house. And we sit down at the house, the sun is setting outside, and it's slowly becoming too dark to see those around us. And so the host pulls down and an oil lamp from the shelf, and lights it. And what does he do with that lamp? As the shadows lengthen, he's holding the lamp in his hand. Does he he stoop down and and place it under the bed? Does he take a, a wicker basket from the shelf and carefully position it on top of the lamp on the table? Or does he put the lamp up on a stand so the whole house is lit? Why does Jesus take us here? What does this this story tell us? How does it connect to the sower? Well, it's a story that Jesus uses a few times in his ministry. We may be familiar with Matthew 5, where Jesus says, look, don't hide your light under a basket. You go and shine your light in the world. We're familiar with that story. But here he's using it differently. He's using the same picture, but he's applying it in a different way. Jesus says, verse 22, there's nothing that's hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. Well, what is this? What's been hidden and should now be made manifest? What is secret but should now come to light? 
Well, Jesus has already told us, verse 11. And talking, he says, I'm talking about the secret of the kingdom of God. That's the secret. The secret that for such a long time was hidden. Now has come the time for it to be manifest. This, this, this mystery, as the New Testament writers write about, that, that God obscured for so long has finally been opened up and shown to the world. We have this language, don't we? Colossians 1, uh, 26. Paul says, all this time there's been this, this darkness, this mystery about the gospel through ages, through, through these centuries, through all these different generations. And now finally, finally, the light has dawned and the gospel has been revealed to you. God has shone his light into the world. 1 Peter 1, this this secret that was kept so tightly hidden that even the, the prophets and even the angels wanted to know what was going to happen. Well, Jesus says, finally the time is coming for this secret to be broadcast to the world. God has lit a light, and he will not hide this light. You see, this isn't a message for us. It's not a command in this instance in Mark 4 to go out and, uh, and to shine our light. This is a reminder that God has now lit that lamp, and he will cause it to fill the house with light. And what, what an encouragement for us. You see, we've just heard this sobering message that we're being sorted. And it's a difficult message, isn't it, that, that we're being, being tested, that, that there are some of us sitting here who are going to bear no fruit. And it's a difficult message because we have to own up to the fact that we haven't borne fruit far too often. Yet here Jesus brings out the encouragement. Jesus says, look, God is the one who is revealing this message. God is the one who is shining the light of the gospel. And he is not going to hide it away. He's not going to obfuscate it. He's not making it difficult for you. He was the one who said, it's too small that this light should just shine on Israel. I want it to shine to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. You see, when we pray for understanding, when we pray for fruit, Jesus is saying you're not fighting against God. You're not twisting his arm. You're not, you're not trying to make him do something he doesn't want to do. He wants this light to go out, to fill the house. And so when you realize that you've been unfruitful, and you pray that the word would, would flood your heart with life, you're asking for something that God wants to do. For something that he is already doing. Isn't that good news for us? For the young people who can find it hard to listen in church? God wants to shine light on you. When you ask him for help, it's something that he wants to do. For the parents with young children who are constantly distracted during services and find it so hard even to to hear the word, let alone to bear fruit from it. Well, God wants the light to shine. When you ask him to shine that light, to make it clear to you, he will. It's good news for those who have such straining weeks that they come on Sundays, half of their head full of the stress of the last seven days, the other half full of the stress that's to come in the next. Ask God to shine that light. 
He's lit, in, he's lit this lamp of the gospel. We can ask him that he would illuminate in our hearts, that there would be fruit in our hearts where there hasn't been in the past. Well, Jesus take us to a third and a final location. We've been at the farm and we've seen this, this sorting that's going on, this challenge to us. Where are we? As the word goes out, where are we? Then we've had this encouragement that, that God is the one who wants this to be revealed, who wants this light to go out. And finally, verses 23 to 25, we have this final picture in a marketplace. And there in a market, there are all of these stands selling grain. And you go up with your, your hollowed out wooden cup or your clay vessel and you, you buy one cup's worth of grain. And there are different traders and you've, you've sussed them out. There's a guy over there who's pretty stingy. He'll take your cup and, and scoop it into the, the bucket of grain and it will be half empty. I'll try and make it look like it's full, quickly pass it off to you, take your money. And there's another guy over there who is known for being generous. When he, he puts your cup into the grain, he, he presses it down with the palm of his hand and he, he shakes it and he gets another scoop and puts it in and presses it down and does it again and again. And your cup is, is rammed full of grain. It's a bit maybe like uh, packets of crisps today. You've had that horrific experience where you've got a, a big bag of crisps and you open it and it's just air and maybe five little monster munches at the bottom. And other crisp providers, you maybe it's sort of packed full and you open it and it spills out everywhere and you're, you're thankful that at least someone's generous. Well, Jesus says when you, when you listen, he says, verse 24, when you, when you hear, you can listen with these two different measures. You can come and you can be a, a stingy salesman. You can come and you can be slapdash about the way you listen. listen. You can come and have uh, one ear to uh, the, the, the voice of the preacher and one ear to all that you're going to do on Monday morning. You can come and you can be so uh, tired from having stayed up unnecessarily all night before that you get almost nothing out of it. Or you can come and be a, a generous hero. The guy who comes and packs that cup full. One who comes hungry to hear. Who's ready. Who's, who's prepared. Who's prayed for help to understand. Who wants the light to shine. Who's ready to be filled. And Jesus says the measure you use. The way you listen. Your attitude towards listening to the word. Will define what's given back to you. And you know this, don't you? You know this from your own experience those Sundays where you've come in and, and, and been such a poor, such a stingy listener, almost given none of your attention to what's going on. And you know that you go away with a poor measure. And you also know what it's like to come with a, a full measure, hungry to hear, steeped already in the word, thinking about what, what could be going on singing with a full heart, trying to understand the words, praying with the preacher, and you know what it is to walk out of the house of God filled with a full measure. So the question is, which are we going to be? As this word is flung out, and as we know that God wants this word to blaze in our hearts, how will we respond? With this stingy, half-full bored and apathetic measure or this attentive, gripped, full, hungry measure.
For to the one who has, says Jesus, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I just love Jesus' teaching here. There's such balance, isn't there? It's just a grace sandwich. He, he comes with this challenge. Look, you're being sorted right now. He fills his message with grace. But look, God is the one who's going to blaze this light out. Ask him for help. He wants to give it. And then he finishes. He leaves you with this challenge in his final verses. So pay attention to the way you listen. Don't be a stingy, half-hearted listener. Take that, that light and grasp it with both hands. And that's the challenge for us, isn't it? As we, as we know that this light has been lit, as light has shone out on the people who are living in darkness, as we know that God is gracious to fill us with the light of understanding, let's determine to be that fruitful soil. Let's determine to be those generous traders at the market who come with a full measure, hungry, prayerful, attentive, desperate to receive the light that God so freely gives. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you take the focus from ourselves and point it to your glorious grace. That this mystery that generation upon generation couldn't look into has now finally been revealed to us. And this light is destined to blaze throughout the whole world, set up on a stand. Help us to respond in kind. Help us to determine to be that fruitful soil. Help us to to take hold of you by both hands, as it were, and to, to plead that you wouldn't let us leave your house until we've understood what you are saying to us. Help us to come with a full measure and to leave every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, to leave with a full measure of truth of the glorious gospel. Shine it in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.